Hello and welcome to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the most revolutionary technological innovations in the history of warfare. That is the development of black powder weapons. Uh, We're going to be talking about what I consider the three main uh, kinds of black powder weapons, so matchlock, flintlock, and percussion cap. And we're going to differentiate a little bit between small arms, so muskets and rifles, and um, artillery, so often called field guns or stuff like that. Uh, and finally, we're I, I'd like to give you maybe just a few terms that you hear all the time when historians, scholars... Uh, talk about black powder weapons, kind of like, well, what's the difference between smoothbore or rifled, or what is a lock or a muzzle, Uh, things like that. So let's get started. Gunpowder or black powder is actually pretty chemically simple. I think it's only got uh, three main ingredients, like in its most basic form. It's generally accepted that the first kind of recipe, the usage of gunpowder, appeared in China and made its way west through traders on the Silk Road, uh, among other trade routes. Uh, We do know that by the mid-15th century, it had made its way all the way to Ottoman Turkey. And in the fall of uh, Constantinople in 1453, the Ottoman Turks were using these large artillery pieces to uh, smash through the walls of the Byzantine city. In fact, black powder weapons are one of the main reasons, in my opinion, that the Middle Ages came to a close. Um, These tall, straight-walled castles uh, were no longer effective against black powder cannons, and a footman uh, with a black powder projectile weapon, like like a musket, uh, at the time they weren't called muskets yet, they were called an arquebus or a harquebus, Um, you could shoot a knight off his horse with that thing, and at a close enough range it would pierce right through chain or plate armor. So that's kind of where I wanted to start. It's kind of like, oh, where does black... Oh, and for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to be using the word gunpowder and black powder interchangeably. So in your mind, just kind of situate yourself. Uh, We're at the very end of the Middle Ages and people are just starting to develop portable uh, black powder weapons. Um, These were, in their most basic form, you had a metal tube. Okay, that's the barrel, and it's fitted to a piece of wood called the stock. Um, The back part of the stock that comes in contact with your body or your shoulder or whatever is called the butt. And the end of the barrel where the smoke and fire and projectile comes out of is called the muzzle. The reason why I'm saying this is because later on when I say something like, oh, a muzzle loading rifle, you'll know uh, what I mean. So this was the dominant uh, black powder small arm uh, weapon for the end of the 15th century going into the 16th century. One of the things that's just incredibly remarkable to me, and I, you know, some people say it's a sad reflection of the, the human species that it's almost like where we put 
the most effort all the time is to outcompete our neighbors and, and develop new weaponry. Um, warfare is often a flashpoint for technological development. We do know that by the time the Spanish started exploring the New World, they had what's called matchlock muskets. So in the past, you would have a stock with a barrel and you would put gunpowder down the barrel and you would ram a projectile. And then there would be a little hole uh, in the barrel where you would um, you would basically apply fire. So you, you would have like a, a, a lit match or something. And it took, uh, you know, two hands to do. And in fact, these weapons were so long and so heavy that you often had a supporting pole, like a brace, uh, maybe four or five feet down the barrel. By the time the Spanish made it to Mexico, you had individual matchlock weapons where now, instead of, you know, activating the powder charge that way, you had either a trigger or a lever that you would press towards the stock and the the metal parts on the side of the weapon, the actual ignition mechanism, which is called a lock, um, that would, you know, propel this little piece called a serpentine forward, uh, later on called a dog, and it was holding a piece of lit match. So let's say you're a Spanish conquistador, uh, you've got this loaded matchlock musket, you would press the trigger or the lever, and there's like a little metal piece on the side of the gun holding a lit match. Um, when I say match, it was actually like a length of burning rope. And that would go forward into something called a pan, and it would ignite the, the small charge in the pan, and through a hole, a vent hole or a touch hole, it would ignite the main powder charge uh, in the weapon itself. And then boom, like you had a like a, a spherical projectile come out, um, which at the time, oh man, they were huge. They were like 75 caliber at least. Uh, and we're gonna see that too in the development of black powder weapons eventually, the projectiles become smaller, but faster and more accurate. So that was the dominant kind of form of small black powder weapons at the beginning of the 16th century. This technology was also adapted to larger weapons. Um, in popular culture, we often call them cannons, uh, but in a lot of military history and stuff, they will call them guns, which is you know confusing because when you say like, oh, a field gun, uh, sometimes people think like, oh, guns, like, you know, rifles. But no, it generally means artillery pieces. And over the next few centuries, there would be huge uh, strides in the field of artillery with different types of guns. Not to mention this kind of technology being adapted to ships and maritime use. And, you know, more than one historian has speculated that one of the main reasons why the Europeans were able to leave Europe and kind of conquer all these foreign lands and establish these wide, widespread colonial empires, trade routes, trading networks, uh, was because of the black powder cannons they had on their ships. Um, you know, the, their ships were... A lot of the lands they conquered really didn't have anything that could resist this new technology. So there's just a few more things I'd like to talk about with regards to matchlock weapons. Uh, the first is the word fire. If you've ever wondered, you know, in militaries or firing ranges or in movies, why do they say fire when what they really mean is shoot? 
Uh, it's because the original order was something akin to give fire or apply fire, and it was an order to the soldiers to be like, okay, you know, your weapons are loaded, give fire. So you would literally apply a burning match to the charge, and, and that would uh, discharge the weapon. What's interesting is that the lock, the mechanical metal part, usually on the right side of the gun, which was the ignition mechanism, was the main thing that differentiated uh, three or four centuries of black powder weapons. You see, the basic design of a black powder musket really didn't change from the 1500s all the way till the 1800s. What really changed was the lock on the side. And for the purposes of this episode, the three main locks we're going to talk about, and these were really the dominant locks found in the period that we're talking about, so the 1500s to the 1800s, uh, which is often called by historians the horse and musket period. So when you're talking about uh, the history of warfare, you know, you have ancient warfare, then you have medieval warfare, and then you have modern warfare, you know, with uh, smokeless powder, bolt-action rifles, tanks, planes, you know, all that stuff. But what's that period in between medieval and modern? It's uh, often called horse and musket. So things, wars that fall within this period include the American Revolutionary War, the Napoleonic Wars, the American Civil War, um, stuff like that. So the point I wanted to make is for the for the purposes of this episode, the three main types of black powder weapons we're going to talk about are matchlock, flintlock, and percussion cap. Right now, in our journey through the you know the story of black powder weapons, we're still at matchlock, uh, which was the dominant form in the 1500s, so the 16th century. Matchlock weapons were used in the Portuguese and Spanish uh, journeys of discovery, the Spanish conquests in South America and Mexico. Uh, stuff like that. You could even see a matchlock musket in the Disney film Pocahontas if you look closely. Like that scene by the waterfall where John Smith almost uh, shoots Pocahontas. Anyway, <laughs> so in any case, the locks are is the main thing. And um, we're going to move shortly to the next stage of development. But one last thing I wanted to say about matchlocks is... Um, the problem with a match on a battlefield is like a burning match is that it was susceptible to wind and rain and snow. And so oftentimes uh, soldiers, their match would go out and so they would have actually the other end of the match also burning. So that may be one of the origins of, you know, burning at both ends. Uh, the famous pirate Blackbeard uh, whose real name was either Edward Teach or Edward Thatch, uh, we're not quite sure, was notorious for his habit of sticking lit matches into his beard when he would storm enemy ships. And one of the reasons for this was it made him look fierce and intimidating, like he was wreathed in smoke and flame, like he looked like the devil himself. But it was also, you know, when you're fighting on a ship where there's a lot of wind and possibly rain and seawater splashing everywhere, it was actually pretty easy for your matchlock to go out. But for him, that wasn't a problem because he had a bunch of them stuck in his beard burning. So if his pistol or his musket went out, he could just grab one and, and put it back into his gun. So we're not going to move quite uh, just yet onto flintlocks, uh, which popped up in the early 17th century, but uh, really towards the end of the 1600s, the early 1700s is when they became big because there were a few intermediate designs uh, like snap locks or uh, wheel locks. 
A wheel lock was basically, imagine the match lock mechanism that I just described, swap out the part that dips a burning uh, bit of match cord into the pan, replace it with a spinning wheel that looks like a cigarette lighter. Um, the closest modern equivalent is a Zippo. So imagine you had a musket, but on the side, there's literally a wheel. And when you press the trigger, it spins the wheel just like a Zippo lighter and it creates a spark and then that discharges the weapon. That was also an early form of firearm that came after mat lo match locks, but before flint locks. So now we're kind of around the year 1600. In the early 17th century, so 1600s, we see the development of flintlock weapons. And this is the, the second kind of big stage in our history of black powder weapons. Uh, again, the, the basic design of the musket or, or whatever didn't change. It was just the lock, the ignition mechanism. So now on the side, instead of, again, a serpentine holding a bunch of... Uh, you know, lit rope or whatever, you had a dog uh, and it was called that because it looked like a dog's jaws and it was clamping down on a piece of flint. And what happens when flint hits steel is you get sparks. So you would have this thing and when you would press the trigger, uh, you would pull back the, the dog to half cock and then full cock. And then you would press the trigger and it would shoot forward and it would hit a metal piece called a frizzen and that would create a spark or, or a shower of sparks that would go into the pan like we know what a pan is and that would ignite that would ignite the charge in the pan and that would carry through a vent hole or touch hole to the main powder charge and sometimes when you would shoot the pan would ignite but it wouldn't actually ignite the main charge for whatever reason possibly the vent hole was clogged up or blocked, or maybe you didn't put a lot of large enough charge in the pan or whatever. And that's where we get the saying, a flash in the pan. It's something that, you know, creates a flash, but doesn't really result in anything. Uh, it's because it didn't ignite the main charge. Flintlocks were a big deal um, all through the 1700s. So you see them in the American wars. Uh, so the Seven Years War, which was what it's called in Europe, but in the United States, it was called the French and Indian War. They used flintlocks. You can see flintlocks in the movie, The Last of the Mohicans. They were used in the American Revolutionary War. Uh, so the British had flintlocks. The Americans originally just imported French weapons or, or seized arsenals of British weapons. Uh, this would be the Charleville musket or the Brown Vest musket, uh, whatever. Eventually, they developed their own based on the French design, and I believe that's the first flintlock musket in American history, is the 1795 Springfield musket. And Springfield's a big deal. They're still making uh, guns today. Uh, you can see flintlocks, you know, if we're talking about the American Revolution, uh, you can see them in the movie The Patriot. They were still used. Uh, so, you know, the American Revolutionary War, let's say 1775 to like 1781, 1783, uh, they were still used a generation later in the Napoleonic Wars. So the very start of the 1800s, all the way to 1812, 1815. In North America, this kind of sideshow of the Napoleonic Wars, it was called the War of 1812. Boom, boom, boom. They're still using flintlocks. Uh, right around the 1820s, 30s, 40s, uh, our third major innovation came along. And this was called percussion cap. 
So now somebody figured out, hmm, you know, flintlocks are good. They're definitely improvement over matchlocks, but there's still problems. Like what if the flint that's clamped in the jaws gets chipped and you're not getting sparks or it gets shifted or moved or what if the frizzing gets worn down or whatever you know we need a more reliable ignition uh, mechanism so now what they did is there wasn't a pan or and another thing too is like if you jostle too much uh with a flintlock that little powder charge which was covered by the frizzing you know whatever but like if you were ready to fire something it might fall out or whatever so what they did is they swapped out this pan of loose powder on the side of the gun and replaced it with what's called uh, a nipple. And, you know, yeah, there's there's a lot of like weird words with guns like butt and nipple. But anyway, and grow up, guys. Uh, so what you would do is like the nipple, you would put something called a percussion cap on it. And it was like a little piece of metal that would fit on top. And it's I believe it, it was filled with this thing called fulminate of mercury. And... Um, the actual like hammer like that was on the side which used to be called a serpentine and then it was a, a, a flint you know in a dog now it was called a hammer uh you would pull it back and it would hit this cap it was almost like a cap gun uh, mechanism if that helps uh you know kind of illustrate the point here and that would illustrate that would uh, ignite the main charge and then boom it would fire in the 19th century is where, for the first time, we get the shift from smoothbore to rifled. Now, what does that mean? When people talk about smoothbore versus rifled, they're talking about the texture of the inside of the barrel. So smoothbore means that the inside of the barrel was, was smooth. And you can still see this in like modern shotguns uh, with an open choke. Um, so what it meant was, uh, you had this like round ball being shot out of this gun and when it exited the gun it would kind of fly all, all over the place and they were wildly inaccurate which is the reason why in old revolutionary warfare napoleonic warfare you had masses of men standing elbow to elbow uh, firing in volleys uh, you know people watch the patriot and they're like why were they just standing there getting shot it's because that was the only way to maximize your fire. Uh, flintlock, you know, matchlock, flintlock weapons, they were wildly inaccurate. Uh, in fact, 100 yards was really pushing it. Like, you know, you would have to, at the Battle of Bunker Hill in the American Revolution, he said, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. And that was because it's like, you know, we want to get a good volley. We really want to hit something. At the same time, you did have what was called rifled weapons. So somebody figured out if we put a spiral groove on the inside of the barrel, the projectile will exit spinning, um, like kind of like a football, actually. And that vastly increased range and accuracy. Now, these did exist in the Revolutionary War. Like you had like Pennsylvania riflemen, uh, Kentucky riflemen, stuff like that. Uh, but rifled muskets were slow to load. Uh, they were maybe a little more difficult to clean. Uh, and they were they were a lot more difficult to actually make. Now, if you're thinking about like, well, what kind of spiral was in the inside of the barrel? They call it the rate of twist. Uh, and for like a long rifle, like a Kentucky long rifle or something, it might be one complete twist in 66 inches. So like, don't picture like a tight spiral coil on the inside of the barrel. Uh, it's more of like a gradual thing. So 
back to the early 19th century, 1800s, you, you get the switch from flintlocks to percussion caps, and you start to have people looking more deeply into, hmm, like, what if we rifle these barrels? The first major conflict to use percussion cap muskets was the Crimean War, uh, which involved the British, French, Russians, and Turks in the 1850s. But really, it was the American Civil War. When the American Civil War started, um, most of Confederate and Union soldiers were using percussion cap muskets. I mean, a lot of these old plundered state arsenals uh, had flintlocks, you know, still. So you did have uh, soldiers in the very first year, maybe second year of the war, going into combat with flintlock muskets, especially on the Confederate side. There were a lot of them involved in the Battle of Shiloh. But since 1842, the U.S. had been making these percussion cap uh, muskets. But they were still smoothbore. So a lot of these early battles, you had them firing round ball or what was called buck and ball, where you would have three buckshot pellets and a round ball. Uh, around this time, there was a French army officer called Claude Minier that developed something called the Minier ball. So he's like, hmm, if we have a rifled barrel, wouldn't it make sense if the projectile was not round, but actually conical, like a round cone with a convex like on the back side of it to channel the energy and then it would get forced into grooves and so that's what happened in the american civil war and that's one of the reasons why the casualties in the american civil war were so ghastly is because now you had percussion cap rifled muskets shooting minier balls uh, which in the states are often called mini balls because it's a corruption of the french word minier so when you hear military historians or Civil War buffs talk about mini balls, it has nothing to do with the size of the projectile. It's just it's just a play on the French word minier. But in any case, what this did was now instead of barely hitting something at 100 yards with a you know flintlock smoothbore uh, round ball musket, which was firing maybe 75 caliber, 69 caliber. The muskets of the Civil War were usually 58 caliber or 54, firing these Minier uh, projectiles. Now you could accurately hit stuff at like two, three, four hundred yards, stuff like that. So a lot of these attack columns in the Civil War, they were still marching in Napoleonic formations, but the killing power of their weapons was vastly increased. Like if they, the projectiles could fire faster, further, more accurately. Uh, in fact, you know, in 1862, the spring uh, at the Battle of Shiloh in the Western Theater of the American Civil War, there were more Americans killed in one day than the combined casualties of the Revolutionary War um, and the War of 1812 and the Mexican War combined. Uh, there were more people killed at Shiloh than the Battle of Waterloo, and the American people were not prepared for this. And they certainly were not prepared for another 20 battles that would either equal those casualties or exceed them. So that's kind of where we are uh, now, you know, in your mind, we're in the mid 19th century with rifled, um, you know, percussion cap muskets. And that was pretty much, you're getting to the end of our journey in, um, you know, black powder weapons. Um, throughout this time, artillery had also been progressing um, so that by the time of the Civil War, you had three main black powder artillery types. You had howitzers, mortars, and cannons, which again are also called field guns. And really the only difference between the three was the type and shape of the barrel, uh, kind of what their purpose was. Like mortars were designed to hit, uh, to fire like 
really, really high up and then come down, and they were used for sieges and stuff like that. And they have like these stout, wide barrels that almost look like teacups. Um, field pieces in the American Civil War were typically six pounds or 12 pounds. That meant that the projectile they were firing, uh, that's kind of how much it weighed. They had solid shot, so, you, so you, there still were cannons in the Civil War firing round ball. But now you had shrapnel shot, grape shot, case shot, where it would fire a canister that would explode above the troops, showering them with uh, bits of metal uh, called shrapnel. Or you would pack the barrel with these little pellets called uh, grape shot. And it was like when you would fire that thing, the range was short, but it was basically like a giant shotgun. One of the things the American Civil War pioneered was the development now you're starting to see of breech-loading weapons. Up until this point, all of these black powder weapons had been muzzle-loading. So the, the end that fires, that's where you're uh, actually loading it. You know, uh, loading a, a Civil War musket was something like an 11-step process. It was very cumbersome. Uh, by this time, you started to have projectiles in like a paper roll with the appropriate pre-measured powder charge, like that was called a cartridge. So at some point, somebody realized, okay, instead of biting open the cartridge, pouring the black powder down the barrel, then ramming the projectile, whatever, what if we loaded it closer to the trigger, like the breech, by breaking open the weapon, this is called a break, uh, break action, or we have like a tube magazine that's cycled by a lever, so that's like a lever action, and what, is, what if instead of like paper cartridges with a pre-measured powder charge and a projectile, we have like a brass cylinder that has everything you need in it, and you put it in the gun, and then it shoots, and then it ejects. Uh, so that's what we have with the development of breech-loading weapons. Uh, a lot of these were used initially in the Civil War, like a lot of these like uh, repeating carbines and stuff like that. Like originally these guns were called repeaters uh, or repeating rifles. Um, in the few decades after the Civil War, like one of the most early, one of the earliest kind of breech-loading uh, rifles you can see is in the uh, 1964 movie Zulu. You know, you had these British soldiers with these these huge rifles, and they would put in one metallic cartridge at a time. Uh, and then eventually, you know, someone figured, oh, what if we had a magazine and a, and a bolt action mechanism? And around the time of the Boer War, so like right around the turn of the century, 1900s going into, uh, uh, sorry, 1800s going into the 1900s, uh, the British fought a war in South Africa with uh, the Boers, the uh, the Afrikaners, like the Dutch people there. And I believe that was one of the first conflicts where he had smokeless powder. Because that's the thing, you know, you need to remember about black powder warfare. Uh, and that's actually one of the reasons why during the horse and musket period of black powder warfare, that you had trumpets, drums, bright uniforms, big colorful flags, is because with hundreds or thousands of people discharging black powder weapons, the amount of smoke was insane, especially if there was no wind that day. So that's one of the reasons why they wore these bright, colorful uniforms. They marched in formation. Uh, you know, they had these big, colorful flags, uh, stuff like that. But, you know, going into the 20th century, you started to have smokeless powder. And that's kind of like where our journey is coming to an end because like now you're getting into modern warfare uh, with rifles, with multiple round magazines, uh, firing uh, cartridge projectiles and ejecting brass, 
uh, using smokeless powder. So that's kind of the thing. But by the turn of the 20th century, the, the era of black powder warfare had pretty much come to an end. I mean, maybe, you know, people hunting in the countryside might still have like a black powder rifle or musket or something like that. But that was pretty much it. All right, so that's all we're going to talk about today. I think I hit on uh, a lot of the main points that I wanted to talk about. So just to recap, we talked about the three main uh, ignition mechanisms, the three main types of muskets and rifles and artillery during the black powder period, also called the horse and musket period, and that was matchlock, flintlock, and percussion cap. I also wanted to kind of explain like some of these millions of words that are specialized to like guns and gunsmithing and stuff like that. Uh, things like pan, barrel, muzzle, butt, uh, serpentine, dog, flint, uh, you know, just like all of these things, the difference between smoothbore and rifled and kind of, I wanted to sketch out a general outline of, you know, when this period started and when it ended and kind of a lot of the conflicts uh, involved. And uh, I even dropped the names of some movies you can watch if you want to see these um these mechanical devices in action. I mean, the black powder period, like I said, ended at the end of the 19th century. And uh, it took people a while to get used to these new weapons. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons why fighting in the First World War was just so absolutely brutal, because a lot of the older generals and people in charge, you know, ha did not know how to adapt to this new kind of modern warfare. Uh, for more details on that, you know, uh, take a take a listen to my series on the First World War. But uh, in any case, that's all I'm going to talk about today. Uh, this has been Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to Bite Sized History Podcast at gmail.com. Once again. Thank you so, so much for listening. Goodbye.